You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Awesome. Hey, you know what? I haven't been here for about six months, and you all look the same. I, I felt a bit like a fish out of water this morning, but it was very nice of the guys down at the, down at the production desk to, to have a, a bit of a equipment fail, because for me, that's just... Every Sunday, you know, just made me feel right at home. I'm just, oh, great, well done. So I'll take that as a nice gesture, guys. Well done. Thanks for that. Hey, you know what this morning is? This morning is our, the first week of our vision offering series that we do every year. We're doing it a little bit later this year because of COVID. Normally, we do it in start of July, but we're doing it now. And it's only going to be two weeks, not four weeks. So you only have to hear preaching on money for two weeks. Everybody gives a nervous laugh, yeah. But it's something we do every year, and it's something we do so that we can increase our footprint in this city, so we can, we can take on projects that make Centro Church more available to people in Ipswich. And that's what we're about, hey? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, come on, come with me. Yeah, great. So we're going to dig into uh, a two-week series on vision offering. Before we do, we've got to understand that what's gone before and Vision Offering connect. The, the redemption of this city is connected to our Vision Offering. And as I was sitting here this morning, I was sort of overwhelmed by this impression that in this hall, like right over here, over here, here and here, there are seeds, seeds of redemption in individuals, in individuals that you are totally responsible for. Some of those seeds are dormant. They're dormant. They're not, they're not activated. They're not going anywhere at the moment. They're just they're sitting there. They're ready to go, but they need stimulation. In this next season, not necessarily the next two weeks, but in this next season, let's push forward six months or so, these, these seeds are going to be stimulated. Something's going to happen in, in individual lives where these seeds are stimulated. And we want to see those seeds grow because the redemption of the city isn't dependent and isn't the entire responsibility of the professional ministry. It's the responsibility of all of us, each one of us. The redemption of this city is our responsibility, our collective responsibility, and all the gifts that lie resident in you, the seeds that lie resident in you, need to come to full flower. Yeah? Yeah. And when they do, we're going to see a forest of awesome proportions, a canopy for the next generation. That's what's going to happen. So let's connect that thought to our vision offering for this time. Today I'm going to take a passage from the book of Jeremiah and continue in the theme of a prophetic life that Pastor Tim has led us around. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange passage. It's sort of like just a description of a financial transaction. It's, it's kind of like accountant speak. And uh, yeah, it, it could be, I wouldn't say it was a riveting read, but it's, it's necessary. So just before we talk about that, let's look at the prophet Jeremiah. When you look at Jeremiah, you have to understand that he's not like most other prophets. We sometimes think that a prophet is someone who's like a fortune teller or who predicts the end of the world. No, a prophet is someone who sees the spirit realm and then brings understanding to natural events from that perspective, the perspective of what's going on behind the scenes. Now, Jeremiah is different from other prophets in that he's known for living a prophetic life more than his prophetic words. See, Isaiah answered a call. 
God said, I have this massive assignment, who will do it? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. But we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was picked out, he was chosen. And chosenness went well for Jeremiah. He liked it. He liked to be chosen for something difficult. He liked the contest. He was up for the collision. See, we're introduced to him as Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, priest of Anathoth. So Jeremiah had the ability to inherit a cushy ministry. He could be the next priest of Anathoth. He could be the one who followed in his father's footsteps and took over the comfortable priesthood. But no, Jeremiah decides to take on the prophetic life and with all its difficulties that it has with it. He trades the cosy number as the next priest of Anathoth for a prophetic life. So let's read. Jeremiah 32, we're going to start at verse 9, it's Jeremiah speaking. He says, So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Masai, I don't know why that's important, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deal and all of the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, Our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And we'll jump to verse 42. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land, which you say it's a desolate waste, without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. What we've just read here is actually the climactic scene of Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah's life has just peaked at this point. The thing he'd be remembered for would be for buying a field in the middle of Babylonian occupation. That has to be a questionable investment, don't you think? Almost half a lifetime ago, I used to work for a bank And for most of my time working for the bank, I was a loans officer. And sometimes I would do home loans, interviews for home loans. And even more occasionally, I would do interviews with Christian people for home loans. And one of the especially tricky parts of the interview would be the income versus expenditure statement. And we would be going through the income versus expenditure statement, working out what they spent their money on. And then we would come to this part where there was this particular sum of money, so many thousand dollars per annum, and they would get all sheepish. And 
they didn't want to tell me what it was. And I'd say, well, I'd say, well, I knew what it was. And I'd play along. Say, so what's, what's this amount here? What's, what's that? What's that? Is donation? Yeah, yeah, they'd say it's, it's sort, of a, sort of a donation. Um, to who? To, um, to a charity? Um, a religious charity? And then, then, I'd, then I'd let them off the hook and I'd say, oh, we're talking about tithing. And they'd go, oh, someone who understands. They'd give a huge sigh of relief. But see, what they were trying to disguise is the fact they were making what looks like to the outsider and sometimes even to the insider is a questionable investment, something that makes no financial sense to the natural mind. One of the things that Jeremiah is remembered for, the climactic event of his life, is a questionable investment. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. That right there is a questionable investment in enemy territory. But it's not. It's not a questionable investment when you look at the actual thinking behind it. It's actually faith. And what Jeremiah is going to show us here is that when there is faith, redemption follows. That's where you say amen. So let me give you the backstory. Israel's been invaded by the Babylonian army. That was inevitable. Babylon were taking over all the countries around them and Israel was just next on the list. Eventually, they'll force the, the Israelite people to march 700 miles back to the Babylonian nation and they'll put them into work as slaves. But there's an 11-year gap between when the Babylonian invasion took part and actually taking the exiles back to Babylon. And what you have here is 11 years where the Israelites are just going about their lives as normal except that they're occupied by a foreign army. And in the middle of all that, Jeremiah buys a field. He's put into prison. He's put into prison for two years because he's virtually the one who said, we're going to get taken over, we're going to get invaded, we're going to get occupied. And when it actually happened, nobody wanted to see his face and be reminded of it, so they put him in jail for two years. And from prison, he decides to invest in a block of land. Now, try to imagine this. Jeremiah is sitting in a prison cell with nothing on the horizon in terms of his release. And from a prison cell, he buys a field which the enemy army is actually camping on at the time. In anyone's book, this looks like a questionable investment. Like us, like when we give. People say, what, you, you live on nine-tenths of your income? How do you, what do you, why do you do that? That's, that's crazy. It makes no financial sense. It looks like a questionable investment. In fact, Jeremiah bought a field on which he would never plant a grapevine, never prune an olive tree or build a house, a field that in all probability he would never even see. Why would you buy a field in enemy-occupied territory? This is why. This is what the Lord says. As I brought all this great calamity on them, on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land. Fields will be bought for silver. You see, God promised redemption and Jeremiah's investment was a precursor a stimulating act of faith to that redemption that was coming. The place looked like a desolate wasteland. There's 
A day coming, but God has said to Jeremiah, when it's going to flourish again. Redemption follows faith. So against the background of that promise from God, Jeremiah buys this field. He does something that requires God to be who God says he is. He does something that requires God to come good on his promises. He actually goes out on a limb. Where everybody else saw enemy territory, Jeremiah saw God-promised territory because he lived by faith and not by what he saw. Jeremiah had a vision of a kingdom-occupied world, but he doesn't go out and preach it or proclaim it. He buys a field in it. He invests in it. Even though there's nothing he can see to make him think it's ever going to happen, he invests in it. It's one thing to believe God theoretically. It's another thing to buy a field that an enemy army is camping on, right? He's actually risking everything on the promise of God. Romans 4.16 tells us that the promise comes by faith. It doesn't come by good management or organization or getting all your ducks in a row. It comes by faith. That's how the promise comes. And Jeremiah takes pains to tell us the lengths that he's gone to to make this investment. That's why there's all that, you know, he took the title deed and went to the version of the titles office or whatever they called it back in those days. What do you think people thought? How long was it since they'd seen somebody buy a field in a Babylonian occupation? What, someone's buying real estate now? The profit from prison at this time? Why is he doing that? And he's between jobs right now. He's taking a risk because God spoke to him. That's why he's doing it. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's mind, did the logical thing. He bought a field that would be part of the coming redemption. Logical to him. He makes a questionable investment in enemy territory that is the stimulating act of faith for the redemption that is to follow. See, in the end, Jeremiah's life teaches us that steps of faith sow seeds of redemption. We need to connect that to our giving. Not just our weekly giving, but our missions giving and our vision offering giving. Those steps of faith are actually seeds of redemption. Actually seeds for the coming redemption of this city. Do you believe that? Do you believe this city is going to be redeemed? If we don't, why are we here? So why do we give? There's a lot of reasons. Last year we, put, we wrote out little cards as to why we give and we put them all on, a, on, on like a big screen and, and they stayed there for a month, even longer. But I've sort of distilled all of this down into four broad theological categories as to why we give. And I want to go into these. Some of them are straightforward. Some of them you know, but some of them you might not know. And let's, let's just go through them all together. The first one is... Number one, you give because you believe that God will give you something back. That's true, but that's entry level. It's true, Luke 6.38 says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Yes, we do give and God does give in return. He gives us prosperity back and that's, that's a good reason. Second reason is you give because you believe that giving will form a noble attribute in you, such as generosity, or that it will break stinginess. And that's, that's true too. 
2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. That's true too. That's a good reason to give. You know, giving is a, is a forming practice. It forms in you generosity and it breaks things that are hindering you in your life. But it's the third one and the fourth one that I really want to sort of major on this morning. Number three is you give because you believe that God will give you authority in financial matters. The book of Daniel, the entire book of Daniel, is my reference for this. Because you've got to see how Daniel plays out. The book of Daniel has a recurring theme. It shows us that abstaining from the indulgences of a particular culture or employing countercultural practice actually leads to a rise in authority, in spiritual authority. There's a principle here, and we'll, we'll nail that down and, and, and state it in a minute. But read the book of Daniel and, and, and study his life. Daniel and his friends manage to deny the idols of Babylon, and they obey God in a, in a hostile culture. And what happens? They, they become the go-to people for the king. They become almost untouchable, even by lions and fiery furnaces. They just rise in authority all the way through that book. They grow in authority inside an actual pagan kingdom. So what are the idols of our culture that we must have a lifestyle that stands against? A lifestyle that stands for the kingdom of God and opposes the culture of our nation, our city, the culture of the times. The things that are the idols of today are the almost things in that they almost work for us almost some of the time. Things like self-focus, consumerism, media consumption, hypersexuality, overindulgence and addiction to entertainment, just to name a few. Like, see, idol is a word that we don't really use a lot anymore, but all of us know the concept even if we don't use the language. An idol is something that promises everything and costs nothing, but in the end gives nothing and takes away everything. One example is if I wanted to be successful in my career. Say I'm an investment banker. Maybe I want to be an investment banker. Say I'm an investment banker, and, and so I want to be successful in my career, and so what do I do? I, I do whatever it takes to advance. I appease my boss, I put in the hours, I go to the conferences, I move in the right social circles, and for a while, that makes me feel great. I feel like I'm right where I should be, just for a while. And then I realise, hey, I'm a different person. Driven by desires that on their own are not a bad thing, but when they're out of order, they become a terrible thing. They're destructive, and I can't escape that loop of productivity that's playing over and over in my head. I get exactly what I wanted, but it doesn't deliver what I thought it would, and it's robbed me of everything else in the process, and I've neglected things that I used to think were important. Another example would be that I want to look good, so I obsess about my appearance. I go to the gym, I work out, I hit the weights, I turn over my wardrobe regularly, and for a time, that makes me feel amazing, but then after a while, Everything is about what I look like and the good feeling goes away quickly and I'm left with great abs, 
better skin, a magnificent wardrobe, and I'm deeper in the pit of insecurity that got me there in the first place. I get exactly what I wanted, but it ends up giving me nothing that it promised and ends up taking everything in the process. That is an idol, and it's the same with money. It's the same with money. If I just had enough cash to do this thing, to take that trip, to buy that car, to build that house, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You will be for a while. You'll be almost happy because money, like those idols, are an almost thing. It's an almost thing. It almost satisfies. It almost fulfills. It almost makes you happy. So a life that goes against those cultural norms exposes cultural lies. When we go against the grain of culture, it exposes what culture is. See, cultural lies live in a place and everyone around you, everyone in the city, accepts the lie as truth. But when we live in opposition to that lie, it actually exposes that lie. And it's also an invitation to something better. In this case, the lie is you'll be, you'll be happier if you have more money. Every advertisement we see is just propaganda for that theme. It's a narrative that we're being sold. The narrative tells us that we're adequate and insufficient and the solution to our problems is just to have more. But when we do something in the natural that goes against that brain, it displaces something in the spirit realm. This is actually where you get to be prophetic, when you displace something in the spirit realm. When you adopt a way of life that goes against the grain of culture, that scratches at the eyes of the idols of our society, we gain something and it comes in the spirit realm. It's called authority and it's added to us when we overcome. If we can master this, if we can get God's perspective on money and if we can live that out as part of our lives, then there is transposed onto us an ability in financial matters that we can't actually trace back to any human source because it comes in the spirit realm. Let me make a prediction. Learn to give sacrificially. Generosity will come to you and you will have recognisable authority in financial matters. You will be a go-to person on financial matters. Now, this principle applies to every area of life where you practice self-denial, where you practice sacrifice. You will see this principle work. This is it. This is a principle. This is the cosmic equation. And it says this. We surrender the almost things that we can control in order to take hold of the promised things that we can't control. See, we surrender our money. We surrender our time. We sacrifice. We come here and serve. Even coming to church on a Sunday morning, that's a sacrificial practice. And what happens is that we surrender that. We surrender the natural things, the almost things. We surrender our time where we could be in the coffee shop. That's an almost thing. We surrender our money, which we could be spending on better Spotify accounts. and That's an almost thing. And we, we surrender the time that we would serve. And we come in here and we, we, we serve God. We surrender that time. We surrender the almost things in order to take hold of the promised things. And those almost things, we can control them. But when God's promise comes... It's, it's, it's coming from a source that we can't control, and it comes in a way we can't control. It comes in bigger and better than we ever expected. 
See, that's the principle behind all forms of self-denial. We actually take a resistant opposite way against the idols of our time. And listen, when we overcome an idol of our, our city or our country, we get authority, just like Daniel and his mates did in Babylon. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, and, and I'll, I'll end with this one, if the, uh, if the musicians want to come up, they, you can take your time, there's a little bit to go. Number four is you make what looks like a questionable investment because you believe that ultimately your cash is an investment, is, is an investment in the redemption of the city. That's, that's what I want to get across this morning. We think when we, we think that our lives are our own. We think we get to be who we choose to be. No, that's, that's not right. The story didn't start with you. And there's nothing that you've done to earn it. We just happen to be on the receiving end of the story of a particularly loving God. There just happens to be a father better than our corrupted imaginations can begin to fathom. He's authoring the story that we're in and it goes beyond us. Our lives in, the, in, the, in respect of the overall plan that God has are just little things. But he dreamed you up before a single day of your life had even expired. So how do we actually live in the human significance that we know is there with a foundation that our feet can actually stand on? Jeremiah shows us. Your story already had a title before you had any say in it. Jeremiah is chosen for a particular vocation, for something God is doing. What is it? that God is doing. God is bringing back the life that he created this world to experience. It's the kind of life that never stops. It's the kind of life that's the fullest kind. In a word, we call it redemption. But there has to be faith first because redemption follows faith. And God is determined to pass that redemption through human hands, through our hands. It's as if God is holding a hand of cards and he's waiting for the exact moment to play his ace. And you're that ace. He's waiting for the right time, the right place, in the presence of the right people to take that seed that's in you and let it rip. When was the, the last time that you made a decision like Jeremiah that required God to be who he said he was, that went out on a, a bit of a limb See, Jeremiah's life shows us that seeds of faith are actually seeds of redemption. If redemption is what we really want, then faith is the only way. And a questionable investment, what looks like an a questionable investment to people outside of the kingdom, may be the trigger for that faith. See, we're praying and we're building and we're serving and we're giving and we may not even see the end result but we know that God has promised redemption and it will come so Jeremiah challenges us about our priorities he says his life says take a step of faith in light of the redemption that is to follow about six years ago we as a church made a questionable investment in enemy territory. 
I'm going to be going there in about 10 minutes. We took a good portion of our vision offering and we planted a second location. That's what our vision offering went to that year. We planted a second location at Collingwood Park. We sent 60 people down there. And since then, we've had people saved. We've had people come back to a relationship with God. We've had, we have sometimes, and some families are there in three generations. We have kids and youth. Youth on a Friday night, and youth is growing. And on, on Friday night, just gone, there were five new kids from the local district who don't go to church, turned up at, at youth. It, even in these uncertain times, God is bringing redemption to our city. Connect your giving to that theme, the redemption of our city. Six years ago, it was a questionable investment. But hey, you know, from every indication, redemption has followed that. And that's the principle I want to get to you today. Why don't we stand? We're going to pray. I just want to pray for you this morning that that you would be significant in the redemption of this city and maybe then it's up to you to work out what that looks like. Why don't you bow your heads this morning if you if you felt something that you just want to respond to God in, in, in some way, you don't know really which way that is and it's not clear just yet. But if you want if you want me to pray for you and, and ask God to clarify for you that response, then might just why don't you shoot up a hand? Father God, I thank you for the collective gifts in this room, Lord God. I thank you for the seeds that you have planted in this city. I thank you for the seeds that are represented by individuals in our church. And Father, this morning, I pray that you would bring clarity to each heart as to how to stimulate the germination of those seeds, Lord God. That you would you would activate that, Lord God. I pray that you would you would uh, prescribe an act of faith, Lord God, that is in proportion to the germination of that particular seed. Father, I pray for each hand that was raised. I pray for, pray for clarity to come. Lord God, that you would speak clearly, that you would in these next days, Lord God, in these next weeks, Lord, help us to uh, formulate in our own hearts, Lord God, how, how much we want to see the redemption of this city, Lord God, and that you would help us to sacrifice and give accordingly. In Jesus' name we ask it. for listening to this podcast.